This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. What's going on, Colin? Nothing much, man. Just excited about this one today. We got Dan Pickering on the show. How you one doing, Dan? Only. Hi, guys. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. So if you don't know Dan, Dan is the founder and chief investment officer for Pickering Energy Partners. Just recently spun off from Tudor Pickering and Holt. So it's going to be a good episode. You know, Dan, Jake and I were Googling Dan before he came on the show. And he's got an interesting background and history. And we actually had to shut down Google because we were learning too much. And we didn't want to be able to. The hard part is whenever you guys walk in the, in the room, it's hard to just not bombard you with all the questions that we have already. It's like, <laughs> oh, I want to know about this. I want to know about this. It's like, okay, wait, slow down. Let's record first. <laughs> so Dan, just if you can give us a high level overview of what you guys are doing at Pickering Energy Partners, and then we'll take it from there. You bet. Pickering Energy Partners. We just spun out from TPH, as you mentioned. We're an asset management firm focused only on energy companies. We invest in publics and privates. We do everything from owning large oil and gas companies on the public side to private strategies where we're investing in producing oil and gas assets or investing alongside private equity sponsors and deals that they're doing. So anything in the oil patch that involves kind of putting money to work, hopefully making a good return, that's what we're focused on. That was uh, short and concise. I liked it. (laughs) You got that elevator pitch down. Is there anything specific that you guys are focused on? At the moment, yeah. Well, public markets are fascinating right now. The world hates energy. The public investing world hates it even worse. And so we run about $100 in AUM there, and it's been really hard. And so figuring out when markets are going to trade off value, there's fabulous value in, in the energy patch right now, but figuring out when the market's going to care is tough. Mm-hmm. And so energy's down, call it 50%, while the market's up 50%. And mm-hmm. so whether it's absolute or relative value, it's, it looks pretty compelling, but it's very heavy. And so figuring out when it matters is what we're focused on on the public side. And then on the private side, we're excited because the industry is being starved of capital right now. So after this big, huge shale boom that we saw where you couldn't put money to work fast enough, it's really going the other direction. So public companies are, are pulling back and spending much less. Private equity firms are afraid to commit incremental capital because it's really hard to sell companies. So mm-hmm. if you put the money to work, who are you going to sell it to down the road? And so what we're finding is that that capital starvation is creating a lot of opportunities. And so it's sort of fun to, to find the companies that can still grow, that you know we're, we're really focused right now on producing assets because you don't have to think about selling them three years from now because you're selling them every day with the production, you know, mm-hmm. the oil and gas production they've got. And so that's an area, a new area for us, and we're, we're just starting to deploy capital there, but excited about owning oil and gas assets. I have about a million questions that I can ask <laughs> on these topics. This is going to be a good episode, but first, let's, let's dive into your background and talk about you a little bit. So petroleum engineer by trade, correct? That's right. Grew, okay. up in, grew up in a small town in Missouri, went to school at what is now called Missouri School of Science and Technology. It was University of Missouri Rolla at the time, and I've got a petroleum engineering degree. My, I graduated in 88, so coming 
out of the downturn, I think there were maybe a dozen of us as petroleum engineers in that class and have been around the oil patch ever since. Awesome. And so when you got into the oil business and I'm assuming, you know, you're working just as a, a traditional petroleum engineer, when did you start transitioning to the finance side? Yeah, great question. So I worked for Arco Alaska from 1988 to 1992, and so Alaska was growing. Prudhoe Bay, biggest field in the country at the time. Kaparik Field was second biggest. That's the one I worked on. But we were still coming out of a downturn, and there were two, they called them rifts at the time, reduction in force. There were two rifts while I was there. I escaped both of them, but I kind of came to the conclusion that by the time I was 40, I was probably going to get fired, not because I was a bad engineer, but because it's a really tough business. And so I said, I need to be thinking about what's next. And so within Arco, I moved over more toward the finance side of the business and started applying to business schools. And so when when I got into business school after it was kind of my fourth year as an engineer, I kind of realized there was a lot more that you can do in the oil patch. And I wasn't necessarily wedded to coming back to energy, but I knew it. And I also loved the stock market and the thought of kind of being able to combine both really made a lot of sense. And so that's what I did when I came out of business school. I went to to work at a money management firm, Fidelity Investments in Boston, covered the energy patch. And, you know, that kind of led me down the path. To- so, so what year were you there? What did you uh, start? Yeah, well, I, guess I was- what years? I was in, at Fidelity from 90, kind of, I interned as, in 93 and came on full-time in 94 and stayed there through kind of late 96. So I was there a couple, you know, two and a half years or so, covered the oil patch as things were starting to get better, finally. And so it was really interesting covering, I covered the oil field service business, I covered the E&P sector, and... There were all these companies that had been left for dead, if that sounds familiar. I mean, Mm -hmm. it feels very familiar and similar to what we're seeing today. But there were all these companies that had been $20 stocks that were trading at two and had doubled to four and were on their way to going to 40. And so it was a really exciting time to be there. And this was, people tend to think about Fidelity as who was running Magellan Fund at the time. This was Jeff Vinnick, who was running Magellan. It was the biggest fund in the world. And so it was just a very exciting time because you had energy doing well, Fidelity was doing well. So it was a, it was a great time to kind of get in the business on the, on the buy side. I want to talk about, you know, you just said that really feels familiar, you know, to the, to the eighties. And if you look at charts, you know, I just started diving into the eighties, you know, rig data and everything this past month. And it's really fascinating to look at. And I think a lot of people forget the eighties, you know, especially people that didn't live through it. And so you have a lot of people in the oil business, especially, you know, at the field level, people that have a hard time seeing past operations. And a lot of people think that this is just another downturn, you know, we're just at the bottom of a cycle, but it doesn't have the characteristics of some of the other cycles. Does it have a lot of the characteristics of the 80s crash to you when you look at it from an analytical standpoint? Does it seem really similar? Every cycle has its nuances. This new this this cycle's nuances shale. So what was happening in the 80s is Prices were bad. Production was falling. In fact, you know, we were on a 30-year decline from U.S. production, 10 million barrels a day down to five from the late 70s all the way to call it 93, 94. But this one, you know, this one's caused by things being too good, ironically. And it does feel like we're seeing bankruptcies. 
the time frame here is stretching. When the things turned down in 2014, you thought maybe this is a year or two. Mm-hmm. We're now in the fifth year, and and it doesn't feel like things are going to accelerate in the next couple of years. Might get worse if we have a tough macro environment. If you know the demand side slows down, you could see oil back in the 40s, and so. You sit there and say, there are many similarities, a bunch of companies going bankrupt. You got a lot of chapter 22s, right? Chapter 11 for the second time. And the capital starvation, the apathy amongst the public markets. The difference is that's happening at 12 million barrels a day of production and rising instead of 10 million barrels a day of production and falling. Mm -hmm. So it's- We've, We've got this problem on focusing on production, on volume of oil and gas production, but not focusing on margins, right? Or returning cash to investors. This seems to be the, you know, if you listen to any management team, everyone focuses on growth and production, but not necessarily actually providing return to investors. And I think that's why the market is upset as a whole with public and private companies combined. Amen. The mindset's changing. It's hard because- Companies were focused on growth because the U.S. was becoming a bigger contributor to global production and Wall Street wanted growth. And so Wall Street was encouraging people not just to spend their cash flow, but to borrow more money and issue more equity so they could get bigger. Because when when we were in a business that was shrinking, adding supply was unique. And then all of a sudden, over the next six or seven years, starting in the mid you know, kind of mid 2000s, we started adding a lot more supply. And it's taking a while for the mindset to shift from growing to attack this opportunity. We've now attacked it so well that we're killing the opportunity. And Mm -hmm. so that shift doesn't happen overnight. It's been happening for the last 18 months and probably takes another 18 months. Do you think it's fair to say that Wall Street is in part responsible for this? Absolutely. So... Wall Street provided the capital. Wall Street rewarded companies that were growing. And and again, to a certain extent, that made sense. I think that that the realization was that there was more opportunity than anyone thought at the beginning. So instead of it just being something that was happening in the Bakken Shale or the Eagleford Shale, here comes the Permian, here comes applying horizontal drilling in other areas. And, And so instead of adding a million or two barrels a day, we add 7 million barrels a day mm-hmm. and take a lot of share and then take too much share. And that turned into OPEC's reaction in, in 2014. So absolutely the U.S. capital markets were responsible. I think the reality was the, the opportunity set was bigger than people realized. And so the money kept flowing. Yeah. Too much money. I hate to bounce around on you guys. I know we can talk about the... <laughs> The analysis of the markets and, and what's happening today. But I want to know when you're at Fidelity, correct me if I'm wrong, but before TPH, Pickering Energy Partners, you'd founded that, correct? And then you'd merged with guys over with Maynard and, and those guys to create TPH. Is that correct? That's right. So there was a, a stop in the middle. So I was in Boston working for Fidelity, covering energy companies, got to know the energy community here in Houston, was introduced to a guy named Matt Simmons. Matt was running a firm called Simmons and Company at the time, was an oil field service focused investment bank, small firm, 25 people, you know, sort of the cream of the crop of of energy investment banking on the OFS side. 
Matt was a, a visionary and a, a neat entrepreneur. And so he and his team recruited me to come down and move from the buy side as an investor in companies to the sell side where I was an analyst and writing publishing research. And so I came to Simmons for seven years. And so from 96 to 04, and then in 2004, I stepped out to form the first Pickering Energy Partners, which was a sell side research shop. But, you know, I, I decided it was time to have my name on the door. And what, so what led to that? Was that something that you always wanted to do? You know, did you have that intention from the beginning or was it just an opportunity that opened up? Not from the beginning. I think I've always had an entrepreneurial bent. Small companies have fit better for me than big companies. If you looked at the history of, so Arco had thousands of employees and Fidelity had fewer thousands of employees and, and Simmons and company had, you know, hundred and TPH started with, with a dozen. Yeah. So it's fun, small environment where you control your destiny is, is kind of neat. And I've always enjoyed that. And, you know, our kind of talk around the office was you're making a bet on yourself, your ability to understand the business and client relationships, et cetera. So no, it wasn't always the goal, but you know, it just kind of was time to move on from Simmons and company and those clients that I developed in, and over those prior seven years, many of them moved with me to, to the new firm. And so we did that for two or three years. And then I got together with Bobby Tudor and Maynard Holt and, and started building out TPH. How did you guys meet? Was it just kind of just through friends? Funny, or? yeah, funny story. So Bobby and I were introduced by a mutual CEO friend. Bobby had been in London running Goldman's office there on the industrial side. I was thinking about getting an investment banking. Bobby was on the way of coming back and, and retiring from Goldman. He wanted to start a energy-focused investment bank. And so I was looking at getting in banking. He wanted a research-heavy effort. And so it was a natural kind of mix. So we were introduced. I'd met Maynard through mutual friends as well. And so Bobby and I got together. We actually met for the first time in December 06 and had a deal done by February of 07. So, oh. you know, it, it made <laughs> sense. Quick. It made sense. I think we'd both dated enough that enough of the people that we, <laughs> we knew a, a good match when we saw it. And then Maynard joined about six months later. So we, we've been fortunate enough to get to know Maynard over the last year, and he mentioned something about TPH starting off as a newsletter that you guys built an investment bank off the back of. Yeah, so this actually kind of goes along with a question that I was wanting to ask. So Pickering Energy Partners, you were working sell-side analysis. What does, that actually, what does that actually mean? You know, is that an investment bank in itself, or is that just a like, consulting service? Can you explain that process a little bit more to us? Sure. So sell-side research, the what you do is you analyze companies and the energy macro and, and you try to put it all together and figure out if you think stocks are buys, sells, or holds. And so then you sell that research to investors. So what we did at, at Pickering Energy back in 2004 was we were, we were creating this research. And traditionally, if you went back 25 years ago, everybody, you wrote research reports, you typed them out. And then you mailed them to your clients. And then it went from mailing to faxing. And then it went to emailing your clients. Well, traditional research 10 years ago or in, back in 2004 would have been two to 10 pages, a bunch of which was boilerplate. And it would be, in many cases, pretty generic because folks are afraid of 
making a company mad. You know, we don't like what this company's doing, or we love what this company's doing, but we're not as excited about what another company's doing. So a lot of times, very generic. What we did with this newsletter, we created what was called the morning note, and we went to a, a research format that was essentially very short, concise, opinionated, we called them blurbs, small snippets, where we basically said, this is good, here's why, this is the fact you need to know, and we put those together every day. And so we might send out 10 thoughts in a given morning note. But the key point was our clients could read those in a very short period of time, know what we thought, and then follow up with us if they wanted to know more. And so that was very unique and different. And we were decent and good researchers. And we had this new delivery method. And it really caught on because this was just as people were starting to get bombarded with all sorts of information, right? Too much information. So make it easier for them to consume. And so much like if you guys look at Axios today, right? Brevity, but good content. That was that, was that morning note that we did. And both in the industry and with our investing clients, it really got good traction. And so what it does is it's an advertisement every day for your company or your brand. And so Maynard and Bobby, you know, used that sort of brand to help grow their investment banking business. Very interesting. It's kind of, that reminds me of like, you know, have you ever read The Morning Brew? Mm Mm-hmm. It's a new newsletter for millennials, and that's very much, they kind of took this newsletter and broke news down into blurbs mm-hmm. to where it's just very easy to digest. It's like each one's like, some of them are like just pictures or like little few stats, and then it's like less than three sentences yeah, on a yes. topic. And they'll use GIFs and memes and all types of yeah. new media, and it sounds yeah. like essentially that's what you guys did, was just create this this new format of delivering information that could be easily digested and that's then right. dive deep, that's deeper right. into it if they want more information. It, the, the key is... You know, if you if you think back to high school, it's harder to write one paragraph that people understand what you're saying as opposed to write a page. You can you know you can just have you know go on and on and on, mm-hmm. and eventually you'll get all the information in there. But it's so it's there's an art to condensing things to what's important. You really have to understand your material, and so it's what I always said is it's, it's harder to write less than more and, but you've got to know it all or be very deep to be able to do that. And so it also gave us an ability, if you will, it's a little bit of a teaser. Hey, here's our short thought on this. If you want more information, then you're going to have to interact with us. And so that tightens that relationship with the client. That was probably the world's first lead magnet in, in oil and gas. Had to be that. So that's a. I don't know if you've heard the term before, but that's the marketing term that everybody uses. I mean, that's the format that everybody follows for any kind of service you could possibly think of. Give a condensed, yeah, yeah. version of it, and then Absolutely. yeah, yeah. So, you know, talking about the market a little bit, you guys right now have a heavy focus on production assets, and I've seen, like I saw online, you guys did a five hundred million dollar JV with Henry Resources, and we can talk a little bit about that, but. Before we get into that, it seems like production is a lot of people's focus right now. And you see these uh, securitization of assets, you know, it's like Rise of Energy and Guggenheim underwriting it. Yeah, There's another one. I think uh, Diversified Oil and Gas just did one as well. What's your opinion on the securitization of PDP assets? Do you think that that's a viable business model or do you think that that's just kind of a fad? I think it's emblematic of 
where people are focused, again, capital starvation. So the companies are trying to figure out how to, to raise the cheapest capital possible, capital intensive business, and, and what Wall Street and lawyers are always good at is figuring out, okay, how can we do that? What markets can we tap? And so yield right now, I think, is, is definitely an area where you can find interest. And so the race of deal, to me, made a lot of sense because you're essentially taking a slice of production that feels pretty safe turning it into yield vehicle, you're not giving up, if you're the company, you're not giving up control of the asset and you've got some money in your pocket. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when you see innovative ways to raise capital, you'll probably see more of those, would mm -hmm. be my guess. And the more demand you have for yield vehicles, the more you'll see things like that, I think. So yeah. I think it's growing. From the investor's perspective, you know, it's just hard to find yield in today's market right now. So if you can essentially create PDP assets to where it looks like a bond type structure, that's attractive. And like you said, from the, the producer side, hey, if we can carve out a little slice of production, but control mm -hmm. the rest of our asset and have the upside of it, you know, that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense for both sides. And I don't, I don't know the specific differences between what they did and VPPs and things like that. But, you know, these instruments have been around for a while. It just, you know, I think it's probably a smarter nuance that, that folks are doing. And again, if you can get, if you can get low cost to capital and, mm -hmm. and by the way, low cost to capital, those things can, you know, we're looking at things that yield 12 to 15%. And that is much cheaper than, you know, what the equity markets would charge today, for instance. And so mm -hmm. it's a good, it's kind of a win-win. You've got investors who are really happy with a double-digit yield when, I mean, when bonds are yielding negative in Europe and, you know, it's 1% something in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you're trying to find ways where you can, you can find that demand and deliver it in a way that, that is sort of allows you to keep control or is, you know, consumable for that, for that client. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the public markets, especially your small cap, you know, sub $5 billion market cap companies, I mean, there's a chart going around that's just, you know, nasty. If you look at these companies in terms of destruction of their market cap, what do you see happening in the public market over the next two years? Do you think we're going to see a lot of consolidation? Uh, you know, obviously we're starting to see a few chapter 11s here and there. You guys have a focus on working with public companies as well as private. Where do you see the most opportunities within these smaller companies that have distressed balance sheets, or do you think it's in the private market? Great question. It, it all comes down to risk tolerance. So the smaller cap companies that are struggling today, a fair number of them have a reasonable amount of debt that's due in 2021, 2022. The market's very afraid that that debt's going to be super expensive or they're not going to be able to roll it. And so that that creates people are selling that today for fear of what's going to happen in another 18 to 24 months. So, you know, if the world winds up being okay, okay, meaning oil stays in the 50s, you know, natural gas stays in the twos, then, then I think probably people are too scared today. So you've got a number of companies that trade at three times cash flow, four times cash flow. You know, I'm invested in, in several companies that are trading at basically their book value, mm -hmm. um, hard book value. And so you look at that and that feels like, that feels like a really interesting opportunity. I think the, the fact that you can buy cheap stuff like that that's liquid is really interesting, but it's volatile as hell. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think the returns there are going to be quite good, but, you know, you might have it down 5% or 8% or 10% month. 
And, you know, if that's too tough to stomach for some investors, then on the private market side, you've got similar opportunities in terms of assets and relatively cheap assets without the liquidity. Liquidity Mm -hmm. should carry a premium, but given the volatility, in some cases, you're seeing people say, I'm scared of getting marked every day. So I'll put the money to work on the private side and wait. So publics to me feel... It's, it's where I've been for 25 years. I have an affinity for it. If you can take the chop, I think the liquidity looks real attractive. Interesting. Yeah, it's really, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize this, you know, if you're not involved in finance and energy specifically, I don't think a lot of people realize this, even people that are in day-to-day field operations, but you always hear everyone talk about the majors and that the majors are going to come save the day. You know, the majors have these these big land positions out in the Permian yada, yada, yada. But when you look at it, you know, 30% of your rig activity is managed by private companies. Another 30% is managed by your sub $5 billion market cap public companies. And then, you know, you probably have, I don't know, 10, 15%, you know, in your midsize to large independent companies that have rig count, but it's five or 6% from the majors, you know, the majors aren't very active. And so, you almost have this, you have this, just this little, this little foundation. And then you have, you know, you just go up this big tower and you have all the activity up in the private backed companies and the small public companies. And it seems like there's too many operators at this time. You know, you have, I don't even know how many operators you have 500 and there really should be, you know, maybe 20 or so. And so it seems that it makes sense. And then, you know, you started seeing the Oxiana Darko deal and said, maybe this is going to kick off the M&A snowball. And do you think that that's going to happen? Do you think that you'll, you'll start seeing a lot of these companies get rolled up or, you know, is it just going to, everyone going to kind of sit back and play it, see how it plays out? The reason we have so many companies is that when shale became an opportunity, it was a big opportunity. I mentioned earlier, it, it turned out to be even bigger than people thought, but because it was a big opportunity, you wanted to chase it as hard and as fast as you could. And so that made a lot of sense for a land rush for a bunch of different companies to go out, take small, relatively small chunks of capital and go out and grab the opportunity and start investigating it. And so we saw the industry really fragment. Challenges now, we pretty much understand what the opportunity is. And now it's about how do you exploit that opportunity most efficiently? So it's moved from a capture game to an exploitation game. And the people that are good at grabbing assets may not be as good as ex- at exploiting them. Mm-hmm. And so that makes a lot of sense to start seeing fewer companies. And you need those economies of scale. You don't need as many land people as you did five years ago. You don't need as many folks on the administrative side Mm -hmm. to sort of manage this process. So, you know, we've been seeing one to two deals a month from the public companies getting together. And I think that, again, as this downturn stretches, and and it's not a terrible downturn, it's just a kind of a long, tough downturn. But as it stretches, you know, people get worn out. And when capital gets tougher, I mean, it's just not as much fun to be laying off people and slowing down. Mm-hmm. And so I think it encourages it encourages consolidation. So, you know, Chevron tried to buy Anadarko, Oxy came in. 
So that was the first sort of big fight that we saw for specific assets. I don't know if we're going to see a lot of fighting. I think we may just see yeah, that, deal, that deal hasn't turned out too well for Oxy in the markets since it happened. So I don't think anyone's going to fight to that extent. <laughs> I think they, they paid up and added a lot of debt to get there. And this is not a tape that folks like debt. And so mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, the downturn better not get worse because they levered up right mm-hmm. into that if that's what occurs. If things turned around and, and rallied a bunch, they'd look great. They'd right? be sitting pretty. Yeah. 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 So So what are you seeing in the private markets? You know, what I've been hearing from some of the private equity funds and other people in the space is that, you know, you have this issue where the private equity funds themselves, if if they still have capital to deploy, you know, they're they're reserved about deploying that capital into upstream assets. But it's not just them. Now it's their LPs and the institutional funds that are LPs into the private equity funds. You know, and we're hearing a lot of things about ESG being a big factor in that some of these, you know, you have two two reasons why institutional funds aren't investing in oil and gas. Either they've just got screwed over in the last 10 years and they're not interested or they have too much social or political pressure not to invest in oil and gas. Is that consistent with what you're seeing in the private side or have you have you heard anything yeah i think that's i think that's a very good characterization of where things are i think you have two things happening from a cyclical perspective you've got folks that piled in to the shale boom and are now a little bit stuck because companies aren't selling and so the private equity firms can't return a lot of capital so investors are sitting there saying wait a second doesn't feel like my investment's doing that well and I'm not even give, getting any distributions. So I think they're frustrated with the kind of traditional PE capital velocity cycle. So you have that happening. ESG, I think it's definitely more of a focus across the market. Mm-hmm. Energy is no different than that. The ESG issues, in, in my mind, you've got, I mean, you've got good corporate citizens here, particularly amongst some of the larger companies. But the reality is, ESG is a bit of a crutch for folks who are tired of losing money or frustrated with not getting money back. Mm. And so I think that that you have a a crowd of institutional investors that truly do have philosophical reasons for not wanting to invest anymore, and they're going to go away and never come back. Mm-hmm. Then you have a bunch of folks who are saying, gosh, I'm really not making any money here. And this feels, you know, the ESG stuff doesn't feel great for energy. And so and I'm just going to leave it alone for a while. I think that returns will pull a bunch of folks back when they start happening. And so, you know, when their momentum returns to this group, when the cycle improves, I think you'll see capital flow back, but it, they're going to have to be convinced. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ironically, the the value investor is gone. And so you're going to have to see things notably improve. Some folks w- will stay away forever a bunch of other folks, public and private, will come back when the returns look better. Interesting. So before we wrap up this podcast, let's talk a little bit about your strategy and how you guys are deploying capital or partnering up with companies, just so if anyone's listening, you know, and they they need to talk to you, they, they can know where you're coming from. So, you know, you look at a deal with like Henry Resources and you guys created this JV. So how does that come about? I mean, is this just you guys buying non-op working interest or are you actually, you know, getting involved a little bit deeper? I don't know how much you can talk about that deal, but just any deal in general, how are you guys looking to get directly invested into production assets? Right. So 
as we were looking at transactions kind of across the country, what we were seeing is that producing assets have really started to get cheaper. Traditionally, a producing asset will transact at PV10, a t- kind of a 10% discount rate on the future cash flows. And that that number has crept up more to PV15. So all of a sudden, I can buy that asset and make a 15% annualized return. And that starts to look quite attractive. As we were seeing that occur around the country, our friends at Henry Resources have been a longtime partner of ours. They've been investors with us. We've looked at deals together. They were interested in the same thing. Their focus is the Permian. Mm -hmm. And so we said, why wouldn't we want to do this in the Permian? Lowest cost basin, very fragmented, lots of players out there, a lot of trapped capital with private equity, a lot of consolidation happening. And so we said, let's do something together. We wanted to be a little bit different. We want to operate the assets so you can control them. And so what we've said is we want to own we want to own producing assets that we can operate. So we'll buy them from the current owner. We'll operate them, hopefully operate them efficiently. We'll hedge that production so we can lock in cash flows and returns. And when you kind of think about that model, it doesn't require a corporate sale down the road. We can just monetize over a period of time. And those cash flows we can give back to our investors. So back to this whole yield, demand for yield. So we can create a yield vehicle in a low-cost basin with a longtime partner of ours that can operate an asset. So that feels that feels like a great risk return for mm-hmm. us. And so we've we've been looking at these assets for the last three or four months, really just kind of hung out the shingle and you know expect to do a lot more here over the next 24 months. So you mentioned the yield a lot. Do you think that most deals like that are going to be structured more like yields as opposed to waiting for, for an exit like you mentioned, where everything's kind of riding on, hey, we'll flip these assets in three to six years? For us in this particular strategy, that's that's the way we've said we're going to do it. If we can yep. sell them earlier, fantastic. If oil goes to 80 and everybody piles back in, great, we'll sell them and, and return the capital quicker. But you know, right now it feels real good to be able to sort of have an annual cash flow number that you can turn around and give back to your investors. So Absolutely. It, it feels like that fits better with today's market than mm. a than a back of management team buy some assets and wait to sell the company. Down That's harder to depend on liquidity on an exit right now, right? That's right. So one last question before we kind of wrap up. What do you what do you think is the next frontier in oil and gas? You know, we've seen the Permian make the great resurgence through the shale boom. Now we've seen just I guess the the very, very expensive capital or lack of capital in the space. Do you think it's going to be a shale 2.0? Do you think it's going to be possibly a restructuring of the, I guess, maybe the capital structure in oil and gas? Do you think it's going to be a new basin? What do you think is next? I don't think it's going to be an explosion of new shale opportunities. I think the industry spent a lot of money and Mm -hmm. things from here on the new basin side are going to be incremental, not exponential. There's a lot of focus on technology and big data and things like that. I think those are are niche. I don't think they're I think they're small compared to the size of the overall business. You know, the this is a little bit self-serving, but you know, I think the the next frontier is going to be the realization that you know, this is a cyclical business. It's had its downs, it's going to have, you know, its ups again. I think it's going to be a realization that you know, the investors that have shied away will actually will come back. And so I think it's going to be more the same will be sort of the, the new thing over the next three or four or five years. If you look out further than that, I think what's going to be fascinating is there is going to come a point where demand does 
finally plateau. And when it does, the industry is going to be very afraid to spend money, but demand is still going to be high. Mm-hmm. And so demand is not going to go from 110 million barrels a day to 50 million barrels a day overnight. Mm-hmm. There's a decline curve in these assets and folks aren't going to spend and we may see production fall faster than demand and you may have higher prices when you have lower demand. And that's just going to kind of turn people on their head. So that's going to be a really interesting thing mm-hmm. down the road. The last, the last thing I would say is that what people have assumed is the next frontier has been you know, electric cars and changes in, in kind of the power grid. And it feels to me like we really got to very carefully watch things like battery technology and, and adoption of electric cars. Right now, everybody assumes we're going to be you know, everybody's going to be in, an, in a driverless Uber two or three years from now, probably two or three decades from now. And so we've got to watch this new technology adoption. Otherwise, you know, the, I think the ESG push is going to really be head to head with with the need to kind of continue to get from place to place and emerging economies and demand, et cetera. So mm-hmm. watching watching some of these new technologies is is sort of what I focus on to make sure that the game isn't changing overnight as opposed to over the next two two or three decades. Absolutely. Those are all great points, especially talking about just the the demand curve of oil and gas. You know, even if we grow if if we stop talk about this a lot, but even if we stop growing year over year in demand, there's still demand there, right? I mean, it levels off. It's not growing, but there's still demand. So be interesting to see what happens that with the combination of new technologies, ESG etc etc so be a fun next 10 or 20 years in the industry without a doubt but dan appreciate you coming on the show this is full of excellent information if people want to get a hold of pickering energy partners where can they find you guys do you have a website we do so we're at www.pickeringenergypartners.com and there's our contact information is there so check us out on the internet Perfect. Dan, thanks again. It was great having you on the show. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. All right, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to share with your friends. If you don't know, this is not only in audio format, but is also in video. So if you want to see our ugly faces and, and Dan's beautiful face, go to YouTube, Digital Wildcatters, and check that out. And we'll catch you guys in the next episode.